We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number 14. Eliminate institutionalised bribery. No one shall benefit financially or electorally, directly or indirectly, now or later, from a decision in which they are involved or have influenced. I, I mean, I, I wonder how one would enforce this. And yet I can see that, you know, to put it in its, its inverse, what you're saying is that if you've been involved in a decision in any way whatsoever, you are explicitly excluded from benefiting from it. And yeah. if you benefit from it, you're, in a sense, you're vulnerable to some kind of penalty. And putting it the other way around, if you're going to benefit from it then you can't be involved in the decision right again we're touching on a great systems thinking concept of drawing a boundary um and it looks like here is an arena where we would need clear and and quite severe boundaries for the separation of powers to work in practice a separation of people is required too. Well, and of course, just to, to remind listeners that this is uh, the last of the principles under the fourth separation of powers, under the independence of the truth and, and results part of government. Yeah. I mean, if you just take something going on at present, voter ID. So the UK government is proposing to introduce voter ID if you want to vote. Its view is that more people will turn up at the voting stations without ID who are likely not to vote for them and therefore introducing voter ID will benefit the current uh, Conservative government. And that's a a very clear area where Mm. you'd say, no, 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 that's not a decision for government. That's a decision for an independent Uh, Well, electoral commission is how it works in many countries, Mm. and they'll decide how these things will work. But you're going to benefit from that, or you think you're going to benefit from it. Right, okay, so So benefit is the the cornerstone of petty corruption, in a way. So the purpose of the principle, then, is about, I think, cleaning out the system. Yeah, so there's all sorts of ways in which bribery is now institutionalised. And with all the lags that any form of corruption 
outputs into the system. And the purpose is to clean it out, all of those places where legal cheating is allowed. Mm. And you create a level playing field between people, uh, between people and government, and between people and business. Right. So that um, means and, businesses, for example, not being able to uh, manipulate behavior by through deep data mining, but being able to sell in a way that is sort of upfront and, and kind of clear of conscience, as it were. I mean, to go back to an earlier podcast, you would clean out preferential lobbying because that is a form of legalized cheating. Um, which uh, sends resources and wealth away from us and into uh, business. To state again, which we've mentioned in previous episodes, but preferential lobbying has been the, the key discovery, the key salience of your and uh, Ray Eisen's systemic inquiry. Like you've followed this kind of trail, yeah. this, you've done this detective work, as it were, to try and suss out why, for example, the Blair government was so ineffective when it had mm. such amazing mandate and resources. And all the roads seem to, seem to lead into this preferential lobbying. People might imagine that this is something that happens with a sort of limited number of people at the very top of government. But I think one thing I'm picking up is that this is a culture that sort of runs throughout our society and is hugely problematic with regards to the truth and recognising what's actually happening. So... It's, it's as if we're playing this game where the rules are skewed. And I mean, if you think of a game, chess, the casino, if the rules are wrong, the game doesn't work mm. at the end of the day. If one player cheats, the others lose interest. And that's, if I suppose, rules... a good picture of, of voter apathy. Yeah, you look at the turnout in the English elections just last week. You know, it's derisory in places. And if the rules are biased and one player always wins, then it's like, why on earth am I bothering? Yes, yeah, exactly. And all of these faults are at play in our constitutions and we sort of feel them. We feel this soft corruption where the protected species are cheating, but we can't sort of put our hands on it and a finger on where the problem lies. Mm. And this principle and the background to the development of this principle is about that and saying, well, actually, there's this soft corruption that's going on all the time. Which I suppose is also about a culture of boundaries, because on the one hand, you know, I think at the top we we were saying how this draws a boundary around a very clear and severe boundary around what people can do. Mm. But also it strikes me that boundaries are not just an important part of psychological development and social development in terms of being clear about what's okay between people and clear about what's not okay and being kind of capable of drawing the line i think is you know certainly anyone who's done therapy will have come up against this um but also socially you know as, as a part of a culture you know the difference between a culture where people have good respect for boundaries and one where mm. people don't have good respect for boundaries mm. is the difference between a culture where people are somehow, I guess, self-contained and, and respectful and one where people are rather sort of slurring on top of one another and kind of, you know, say, ah, it's just the way it works, you know, you know, don't worry about it. And then after a while, it's if you can't beat them, join them. And then, you know, everyone's at it. So it's all right, isn't it? But actually it degrades 
society. It degrades any sense of collectiveness and that we can together achieve far more than mm-hmm. we can if everyone is off cheating. Cheating's founded on the doctrine of irresponsibility and it serves to avoid being held accountable for its effects. It's, it's covert. But successful societies are based on cooperation. I mean, as, as well as fair competition. Mm. But it feels to me, all of this corruption in mm. its many and various forms, it, it's like a sort of slime that covers me because mm. I'm part of this society. I hope that I don't cheat but we're all in it, and it's like, can we just get rid of this spline? Well, it's, um, you know, when you talk about a doctrine of irresponsibility, you know, it's interesting how we think about identity, nationality, and, and power and superpowers. And, you know, we think of, you know, rising China and the, the sort of the great power that China represents. But if you meet someone who's been to China, they talk about how the Chinese think of themselves as being a third world country. Um, same in, in, in the States, indeed, in particular with the Republican Party, there's this sort of sense, certainly at the moment, of, of somehow, you know, the doctrine of irresponsibility is such that, you know, it's those guys, those people in the swamp that are doing this to us, and we need to rebel against them. So mm. the on what is the pretense of rebellion, and I think this comes up, we talked about Rupert Murdoch some time ago, and again, mm. there's this sort of sense of Murdoch as a rebel, which is mm. completely bogus, but it allows mm. him to sort of undermine any sort of reasonable outlook on things that would just allow for a just society. I know that Fintan O'Toole has talked about this with regards to Ireland as you know mm. our post-colonial legacy, that one of the things that's really hobbled Ireland is this sense that somehow there's something wrong with being responsible. There's something wrong with taking responsibility for what you do because somehow it's, it's not culturally acceptable. So to get more into the context, one thing that you said in the book was that all these forms of bribery have facilitated the expansion of neoliberalism and its wealth and power elites, as well as its cleansing or ethnic cleansing of other forms of market capitalism. Mm. Now, that's a big thing to unpack. Um, I suppose the first thing to unpack is neoliberalism which you know i feel like i've only i'm only beginning to understand what that is which is that it's the the destruction of post-world war ii market regulation which is designed to avoid allowing for accretions and disproportions of political power and wealth inequality and then subsequent to that so the the what the Bretton woods um conference was set up to do was basically to examine um, and deflect the conditions which had allowed for the rise of Hitler's and Mussolini's and so on. Mm. Um, but then the result in the 80s and, and 90s and noughties, as it were, has been the, the rise of profit as ethics. So that was the real sort of Thatcher boom, wasn't mm. it? Which is Milton yeah. Friedman and all the rest of them. Yeah. Since then, the, the rise of the power of the finance industry. So mm. this is a, another whole can of worms but also as a part of that the rise of fast-moving cross-border global capital and tax avoidance uh absentee investment yeah as well again cross-border so the the division between ownership uh and and cost or 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 benefit 
And then, of course, these abstruse vehicles of corporate ownership, which allow for a masking of true ownership. And, you know, if we talk, you know, this podcast is called The Hidden Power. And on the one hand, we want to talk about it in a positive sense of, of the hidden power within ourselves. But this corporate ownership, you know, this is the sinister hidden power yeah. that things like the Panama Papers have served to to expose to some extent. But it's such, yeah. I think the problem isn't, exposing this once as a once-off and then dealing with it. This is the establishment of a massive culture across the globe, which has been hopping around between tax havens and shooting down any attempt at regulation. And then this goes all the way up to the tops of governments as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back to the boundaries point. You know, these people need boundaries Mm. and it's our job the people to set the boundaries Mm. through a constitution and to say no you can't do that and no you can't do that and no that's not how it's going to work on the one hand it's quite simple on the other hand you then have to identify all the many and various forms of institutionalized bribery that there are in order to counter them You've catalogued them before, but maybe you can talk through a few of them, or at least the main ones. Yeah, this isn't an exhaustive list. And we've talked before about the revolving door for politicians, regulators and civil servants to become employed in companies or industry associations. So that's obviously topical with with David Cameron and and Greensill. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a rather more obvious form of institutionalised bribery that essentially will... I'm a company, you're the regulator. If you are lax in your regulation of my company, that's great. And by the way, the chances are you'll get a job mm. with us at a much better pay and so also, on. Also, I think there, there, there does appear, maybe this is conspiracy theory, but it does appear to be a sort of career path where you serve your time as a politician and then you kind of graduate into going to work for a company. If you're an MP, it's actually one of the most insecure jobs going. Of course. Um, yeah. By contrast, actually, interestingly, with a civil servant that has one of the most secure jobs going, but leaving that juxtaposition and its Well, we'll come back to that, I think, in a minute. To, but... to one side for a minute. But if you're an MP, you need to be thinking about, well, what happens at the next election if I lose my job? And to a quite reasonable extent, you need to be considering, do you have a career Hmm. elsewhere other than in politics? We've got to get their minds away from and therefore I'll line myself up with a number of directorships and consultancies and all the rest of it with people that I have uh, been involved in the past in a governmental sense. The next one, I think we've also talked about awards and honours, which are given in return for party funding or favourable news coverage. The next one is less obvious. Pensions, and we can take uh, pensions for, for civil servants and MPs. Let's take, let's dwell on that one just quickly for a moment, because the way this worked was that A long time ago, MPs didn't have pensions at all, Hmm. um, which was obviously not a good thing and and indeed not fair. They then became part of 
a similar scheme to the civil servants. What this then meant, and the civil service scheme was unfunded, which meant that taxpayers were paying the pensions of the civil servants for a long time. And these were top hat pensions. And the taxpayer was funding them rather than it being like most other schemes where the pension is funded. But once you've got the MPs on the similar scheme, are the MPs then going to want to change, reform the civil servants scheme? Hmm. So, you know, they have become party uh, to that form of institutionalised bribery. What becomes your objective working in an organisation with a very good pension on the end of it is to survive in the organisation and get your pension. Mm. Anyone over 45 in the civil service would be mad to leave. And so, right, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to go along with the orthodox thinking that's in that particular organisation. And this is not just the civil service. It might be a council. It might be a quango or wherever. So you get institutional stasis. Right. Um, so they're not deliberately uh, nefarious, but they have deleterious outcomes. Also, of course, deep unfairness, because mm. you'll find, for example, on the one hand, in the public sector, typically uh, the management and office workers getting these really, really good pensions. On the other hand, you'll find the grounds maintenance worker whose job has been privatised and whose pension is now minimised, getting a really poor pension. Moving on from there, you then look at compensation committees and you know executive pay and all the rest of it. And I've been involved in these committees and seen the way in which they work. And, you know, hey, presto, mm. the chief executive mm. and the senior directors should be paid even more money this year than last year. You then look at how that decision came about. Well, first of all, they'll employ compensation consultants, they're called, who will go off and review the market and come back and say, well, actually, the market says, you know, you should be paying more. And, oh, that's quite good news, isn't it? So I think we'll employ these consultants next year, shall we? Mm. Then you find that actually on the compensation committee, you'll have the quotes, independent directors. Gosh, guess who the independent directors are? They're CEOs from other big companies who are sitting there thinking, oh, well, if we award this CEO a 10% hike, then that's going to come back to the considerations of my compensation committee mm -hmm. going, well, look, they've awarded So it's quite sort of tribal, isn't it? There's a tribe of people who, who have shared interests. And it's self-serving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes on, well, you know, our CEO is terribly important. We've got to encourage him and all of that nonsense. Mm -hmm. And that really came across to me as nonsense when I was on the PwC global board and mm -hmm. we were considering the recommendations of the Compensation Committee there. An American member of the Compensation Committee said, well, actually, we really could pay the CEO zero because he so wants the power. Hmm. <laughs> and in the sense of, well, there's a market statement about how much he's worth. The last yeah. one yeah, I, I put in here in, in terms of these sort of hidden 
hands of institutional bribery comes up in mergers and acquisitions. So there you are, you'll get the investment bankers coming along to uh, company X saying, here's a good acquisition, how about taking over this company? And then that company will talk to uh, often the company they're going to take over. In the deal for you being acquired, of course, in order to bring the management of the acquired company onto the taking over company, we need to give incentives to the existing management. So existing management, you're going to get X percent of the shares of the company. Hey, presto, the management there are going, oh, we think this is a terribly good idea. There's been lots of analysis of mergers and acquisitions, and actually most of them destroy shareholder value and they are not about expanding shareholder value. So the question is, do you want to make these things easier or harder? And remember, the main benefit in merger and acquisitions comes to the global monetary system Mm. and the money that goes into the people, the investment bankers, the banking system that's organised. This is a bit like the question of leveraged buyouts, isn't it? There's a a use of debt and financialisation to extract wealth and profits. Um, yeah, without and, taking and, on risk. And that's exactly what's happened to several of the Premier League football clubs right, that are right. now getting rather pissed off. And there was another riot last night at Manchester United versus Liverpool um, by the fans uh, quite reasonably. So just to emphasise this point, money changed hands in effect in the demutualization of building societies. So all building societies in the UK used mm. to be mutuals, which means they're owned by the members, by the people yes. who in, yeah, you know, yeah. get mortgages and put their money in and so on. They were demutualized and again, the management of those building societies, well, you know, we really need to make sure you come on board. So here's a wad of cash and they going, oh, right, this is a terribly good idea. So they recommend it to the members and, and the members actually were also bribed. Here's a, a very small wad of cash for you. And then what do we find happens? Northern Rock was the leading company by then that got over leveraged Mm. and went bust and led the way into the financial crash. If Northern Rock had remained a mutual, that would not have happened. So, you know, there's all sorts of deleterious effects Mm. to these forms of institutionalised bribery, which aren't particularly visible. Well, let's just re- rehearse a few of those before we get to the sort of the more positive side of this principle. So we've got these general kind of distortions and, and kind of the diffusions of, of responsibility, as it were. Um, one thing you've mentioned before is the sort of loss of power at, at the kind of lowest levels, that the, there's an increase in uh, wealth inequality that comes through this kind of yeah. culture. Um, yeah. and, and therefore a, an increase of power inequality, which then has led to these sort of populations of disenfranchised peoples. Mm. Um, but then to get to the benefits of eliminating institutional as by bribery, so the benefits of putting a boundary in so that no one should benefit financially, electorally, directly or indirectly now or later from a decision in which they are of influence or have influenced. One of the first positive outcomes that seems evident to me would be 
if this could be achieved, and I suppose it is achievable if the boundaries are severe enough, that mm. this is going to be good for democracy in general, that it, it, to create cultural norms through this principle will contribute to a more open society, contribute to trust in governments, um, and will contribute to the diversity of decision-making as well, presumably. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at all this, and I'm, I'm wondering... I suppose one thing that's, that strikes me is that, um, you know, Karl Popper moved to New Zealand, the Austrian philosopher, who wrote the book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, moved mm. to New Zealand because he believed that this was a genuinely open society. And I just wonder, where do we see examples of a good culture where these kinds of boundaries are well-maintained or, you know, are there any models that spring to your mind of what we could copy or where we could see this in action? Well, there's several points. One is that undoubtedly institutionalised bribery, I mean, it's become the norm in the UK and the US. You know, we don't need to get too hair shirt here. It's the norm, particularly at the top, Hmm. in many European countries Arguably, it's even worse in some of the East European countries that have now become notionally democratic or less dictatorial. So no need to get hair shirt. I mean, this is pretty common everywhere. Mm. But there are better countries where the culture is better and the constitution is stronger. You know, so classically, as we've talked about before, Scandinavia, Switzerland in a different way. The point I want to make before moving on is that every constitution in the world needs reinforcing Mm. to expunge this culture of institutionalised bribery. But if we take New Zealand, it's interesting because their founding constitutional document, the Treaty of Watangi, was signed by both Maori chiefs and representatives of the British Crown. Then the British population quickly grew larger than the Maori population, And the Pakaha culture, the immigrant culture, as it were, began to dominate. But then in the 1980s, the Maori culture started to undergo a renaissance and there's been a renewed focus on biculturalism. Hmm. And particularly the way in which Maoris have gone about taking decisions and the respect and the guardianship towards the natural world the way in which they will be much more concerned with getting diverse perspectives. I mean, almost what you might call citizens' assemblies as a matter of norm. Some of the guiding, well, their guiding principles, actually, uh, which I suppose in a way are systemic as well, Utu, balance and harmony, Mm. uh, the preservation of balance and harmony within a civilization. A fault must always be corrected and a kindness repaid. Uh, but the means by which that's accomplished may vary greatly by case. And gifts exchanged governed by three basic principles. Giving had to have the appearance of being free and spontaneous without mm. the stipulation of a return presence. Secondly, a strict system of obligation where enforced whereby the receiver was bound to not only reciprocate, but to increase the value of the reciprocated gift. And that further social obligation has now been established to continue the exchanges. So, so it resonates like, with early uh, Germanic or, or Celtic. Yeah, yeah. The sort of 
reciprocation. Mm. Um, guardianship, which was guardianship of the natural environment, which was so well, it was it was and is so important to them. And I think we're now working out just how important uh, it is to us. Just, yeah, yeah, not just important, absolutely uh, essential taboo, which sustains structure and social order can be seen as a legal or religious concept that's centered on the idea of being forbidden and sacred it's often distinguished as something high in value and importance mm. being set aside by the gods and this is one i would like to emphasize at this point tribal elders you know, because older people have been around for a longer time made more mistakes seen more mistakes but you certainly come to them for wisdom they, they, they have a voice. Yeah. So those sorts of things. And and then how then do you get this culture into a constitution? Well, first of all, you have the principle, as we've laid it out there. But, of course, there's all the other 26 principles, mm. which are all pointing in the same direction and reinforcing, and particularly in this section on the full separation of powers, you know, feedback, so we have honest, accurate feedback on what's going on, and that includes on any forms of corruption. Um, well, it's as well about as de- dealing with reality, isn't it? It's about having a, a clear it, it, view of the situation you're dealing with and not a yeah. deluded fabrication yeah. that you're sort of punching like a, a straw man. Then that goes into the constitution. Then within that, you have institutions. So if we go back to the voter ID point, well, there will be an institution which will be absolutely independent in the constitution of government or indeed political parties that says what is the basis for voter registration. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but interestingly in Norway, voter registration occurs at birth. So no one can take your right to vote away from you. But so you've got those independent institutions. But it's interesting, this creeping and, and subversive use of these very simple tools by yeah. power-hungry governments to steer things their way in a way that seems innocuous, but in aggregate is very far from innocuous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to try and make it not a sort of political party knocking point, mm. Labour, when they were in power, reckoned that there was a 5% bias in the electoral system because of the way in which seats were distributed and the boundaries drawn, that there was a 5% bias in the system to Labour. And they just left that and said, well, that's fine. That's jolly good. We're benefiting from that. So you've got all of those things in the Constitution. Now, if there's an argument, then, as we've said before, that goes to the Constitutional Court. Mm. You know, so no one shall benefit financially or electorally from a decision on which they're involved. or having well, if someone said, raises you know, the question, I'm, was that appropriate? And you're saying, well, it was completely appropriate. And other people think not so then you can go yeah, to the so constitutional court and they will determine the interpretation of the constitution. Yeah, and that principle is not difficult to interpret. Mm. You know, it wouldn't be difficult to, to work out, has this person or not benefited financially yeah. or electorally from this decision in which they're involved, yes or no? And so, you know, people say, oh, it's all too difficult. Well, well actually, 
I mean, this one particularly, in a way, mm. the more I come to think of it, it's not terribly difficult at all. In fact, it's remarkably easy. Well, it's remarkably easy, but also remarkably beneficial. It has the potential, if it was introduced or when it is introduced, to yeah. bring about huge change in benefit based on what you've already discovered with regards to the massively problematic effects of, of lobbying of all kinds. You know, yes. to, to straighten out that road would probably be the key thing to bring about a sustainable human life within the biosphere. Where can you have most leverage mm. in a constitution? This potentially is one of those ones that uh, could have an awful lot of leverage. Mm. And just getting in some of these, the, these are fundamental to a well-functioning society, you know, fundamental to expunging the culture of irresponsibility. And the way in which this could cut through mm. so much nonsense that yes. we put up yeah, with yeah. day after day, I'm getting more and more enthusiastic about this one. Oh, good. Well, riding that wave of enthusiasm, let's look forward to the next batch, the next sort of subsection of the 26 principles, and in particular, uh, principle number 15. Yeah, well, this comes under the section of government. So we've we've done biosphere and the people. We've done democracy and subsidiarity. We've just finished full separation of powers and the world can't run on lies. And, and finally, uh, or now, we're getting into governments and how governments will operate. So number 15, governments shall serve democracy and be effective, stable, adaptable, accountable, and open. You know, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? 